0: so ready being full of burrito makes one very ready to podcast i would i would say so full to the brim welcome to super duper
1: Stitious. the paranormal podcast where we talk about the science behind the strange i'm Wyatt.
0: i'm still surprised every time we do it without fumbling i don't know
1: we've we get it tighter every time too i wonder if I'm there's jake. gonna be a day where we yeah he's jake where we no, just have it down in three words super duper Stitious science behind strange <laughs> it's longer to say the name of the show than to describe, <laughs> describe the show yeah <laughs> whatever that's everyone's dream anyway we're here again welcome to the show we're
0: glad you're here as well we're
1: very glad if you've not listened before i'm wyatt he's Jake.
0: he said that three times i think I, something like that oh god we record it <laughs> <laughs> we talk into mics you hear it i think this is the part that i need to explain to them right now we pick a theme each week and then we each find a little uh, a little story or something that fits into that theme, and we talk about it, and uh, we science about it if we can. Yeah, Jake and I both have a background in science and a background in friendship,
1: and we mm-hmm. combine those two factors to uh, break down the strange and the paranormal. <laughs>
0: Mostly the friendship part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Before we get into what our theme is this week, we want to introduce a new segment, which is kind of something we've mentioned before. We've done it informally, variously, sporadically in the past, but now it's going to be kind of, I think, more of a, a structured thing called The Quaff.
1: So, Jake, um, what are we drinking today?
0: We're drinking today... It's a lactose India pale ale from Garrison City Beer Works right here in Dover, New Hampshire. Ooh. So it's a pina colada IPA. Very nice. So
1: just to describe a little bit about how this segment works, Jake and I enjoy drinking a beverage from time to time with the show. By from time to time, I mean every time.
0: Literally every single show, except for that one two weeks ago. We had kombucha instead of <laughs> beer. All that of beer. show will
1: be struck from the record. Um. <laughs> yes.
0: So we'll be rating these beers based on some pretty well-known criteria, starting, of course, with physicality, which is how the beer is. What does it look like? What's a can look like? Uh, the bottle, you know, it's, what what is it? What what even is this beer?
1: ability, flavor, general body. And how fast do you think you could drink it? And of course, the most important aspect of the beer,
0: the joie de vivre. Uh, So let me start out by opening this can. Do you want to hold your microphone to it? Yes, yeah. That was very, uh, toy. I almost tried to talk into the can instead of my microphone. This is going (laughs) very well so far. (laughs) This is the first beer of the episode. (laughs) There's some Foley. I feel like Foley is the most important part of all beer reviews. Oh, yeah. Somehow mine just sounded really unpleasant when I did yep, it's, it. It was a very
1: visceral sound. can has officially been poured. Uh, Jake, what would you make of this beer's
0: uh, physicality? For its physicality, I mean, it's a, it's got a kind of a cloudy look to it, and the can is really cool blue kind of thing going on with some neat shapes. I'm going to give this a physicality of 9 out of 10. Ooh, I like it.
1: I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10, just because I think the can could be even more sensational. But for me, an 8 is a, eight
0: is a 9 for you.
1: <laughs> an 8 is a 9 for me. We'll give it an eight point five. There it is, for chuggability. What do you think of this
0: beer? Oh yeah, we haven't tasted it yet. We should probably do that. That's Let's probably what beer right for.
1: Now. Holy shit! I've never tried something like this before. Uh, very juicy, but almost like it's got a little bit of sweetness to it. That's very deep, much the lactose aspect kind of, of it. The sweetness, but then on the nose, it's almost perfume. A perfume factor mm. that I don't, I don't not enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> I'd wear this beer. I'd wear this beer. Splash it all over yourself.
0: The question, of course, is then how fast do you think you can chug this beer? I think this would
1: be very low on the chuggability scale. This is a sipper. And I would give this a negative five for very sippable. I would give it a two
0: because I have had a lot of this beer in the last week. (laughs) All right, good. So then last and, of course, most Most importantly, of course. What will we say about this beer's joie de vivre? It's got a really good outlook, in my opinion. I think so. It seems pretty cheerful. It seems like a
1: pretty good... So I, I guess as a summary, I'd say
0: this is a summary beer to drink. Oh, I think I understand what you did there. What did I? Did I do something? And that is... The quaff. <laughs> <The cloth. cloth. laughs> so our theme this week is, Mr. Shell... Ancient and or weird strange tech
1: technology very broadly speaking we're looking at technological innovations or advancements purported to have been made now or in the past or really
0: any old place we're both ancient so it's it's definitely ancient yeah ancient tech <laughs> <laughs> that we're talking about indeed so you will be going first oh Mr. my sure.
1: well allow me to jump right in i will well thank you very much you're welcome well I don't know about you, but in my opinion, the greatest pyramids of all have to be the pyramids of Giza. I think you'll find some who agree. (laughs) I, I hope so. These guys essentially don't need an introduction, but here's one anyway. The oldest and the largest of the pyramids, the Great Pyramid of Giza, is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and, as it is embodied in a relatively simple shape was very likely among the first major icons of international historical culture that most children around the globe will have learned about, likely before they even enter primary school, I'd wager. Mm. The Great Pyramid of Giza spent almost 4,000 years, from 2,560 BC to 1,311 in the Common Era, as the world's tallest building, Hmm. Uh, A bit taller than the Statue of Liberty in the U.S. and approaching half the overall height of the Eiffel Tower. Just to give you some reference. Okay. Egyptologists also believe that uh, the thing could have been constructed in just about 20 years, which is a pretty bonkers speed. Yeah. When you think about the fact that the structure is made up of 2.3 million blocks of granite and limestone. Most of which weigh an average of 2.5 tons metric tons a piece, with the largest breaking the scales somewhere between 25 and 80 metric tons. Wow! So, given its massive big uh, rock, it's a big old heap of rocks. I'm on a heap of rocks kick lately. I guess you
0: are. Think about last (laughs) week to this week. Yeah. Uh, Given its
1: massive size and the incredible weight of the building materials, building the Great Pyramid in 20 years would involve installing approximately 800 metric tons of stone every day moving an average of more than 12 of these blocks into place every hour, day, and night. This makes for a pretty intense pace by any measure, and one that seems essentially impossible when you consider the precision of the overall build. Most of the exterior casing stones, but most of which have now fallen away, Mm -hmm. and the internal uh, chamber blocks of the Great Pyramid fit together without mortar, with joint openings spanning an average of just half a millimeter wide. Damn.
0: So these things were... Very precision perfectly cut. Perfectly constructed, yeah. exactly. And all the passages inside and stuff were not carved out of it, but they were just built into the shape of the stone. Constructed, so that, exactly. Yeah.
1: So just as you've said, it's that much more impressive for that internal architecture. Mm. So the entrance to the Great Pyramid is on the north side, about 59 feet uh, above ground level. A sloping corridor then descends from that uh, opening through the pyramid's interior masonry into the rocky soil on which the structure rests and ends in an unfinished underground chamber. From this long descending corridor branches an ascending passageway that leads to a room known as the Queen's Chamber into a large slanting gallery. If you don't know, gallery is just a high ceiling passageway that is 151 feet long. Full of paintings. Exactly. Um, At the upper end of this gallery, a long and narrow passage gives access to the burial room proper, usually termed the King's Chamber, which is entirely lined and roofed with granite. From this chamber, two narrow shafts run through the masonry to the exterior of the pyramid. It's still debated whether they were designed for a religious purpose or were meant for some sort of ventilation. And above this granite chamber, the king's chamber, are five compartments separated by massive horizontal granite slabs. So if you can't really conceive of this mentally, that's okay. It's kind of hard to, but there are plenty of diagrams online. I do invite everyone to look them up if you're interested.
0: Or we could link to one. That might be helpful. That also might be
1: helpful. Um, (laughs) Just
0: link to (laughs) google.com.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Very recently, in 2017... Scientists from the Scan Pyramids project actually discovered a large cavity above the Grand Gallery using muon radiography. So uh, muons are sort of subatomic particles that are so small and so high speed they basically can travel through everything. Everything, right? but using very sensitive detection equipment, you can actually measure their. Rate of passage through these things. Yeah, if
0: there's, I guess that they're passing through so empty space versus solid granite, they have some kind of interference happening to them. Maybe A measure of difference there.
1: In, indeed, I won't really get into how the, you know, obviously the methods of exactly what they did to get these measurements, but they were able to detect what they are now calling the Big Void. Its length is at least 30 meters, uh, or 98 feet, and its cross section is similar to that of the Grand Gallery, which is beneath it. So its existence was confirmed not only through this uh, method, but also by independent detection with three different other technologies, uh, nuclear emulsion films, uh, scintillator hotoscopes, and gas detectors, things that I don't know. (laughs) Several
0: things made up, and one thing that sounds like not a thing. (laughs) Yes,
1: indeed. (laughs) Um, I uh, don't know how any of those things work. Mm -hmm. Suffice it to say that it is very reassuring, basically each successive consistent result given each method improves our confidence collectively that um whatever we think we're seeing is true yeah which is cool because you know if you're just using muons to detect a cavity it could just be an error in the tech sure it could be whatever so there's another cavity we don't know what it was for It's not accessible at this point. Hmm. Zahi Hawass, who is basically the lord god of
0: Egyptologists. (laughs) Is he still... I want to ask, and this may kind of derail, is he still the... I mean, he was the secretary general for Egyptian antiquities during a particular administration, but then he... Political things happened. I don't know if he's still in charge anymore, but... Um,
1: I'm not sure, but I know he is quite outspoken and... Kind of jealously guards yes. Egyptological if you information, I suppose. Put a shovel you in
0: the ground in Egypt, you basically have to go through Hawass. But he's uh, In the worst way. You have to dig through him to get into the ground. Exactly. Now, if you watch any kind of like um, you know, T V special or anything from like the mid nineties up until very recently, he would usually be there and very charismatic guy, very fun oh, to watch the so. if he's on, yeah. Anyway, keep going.
1: Uh suffice it to say he thinks that uh, the gap may have been used in the construction of the grand gallery itself huh. um, that research team apparently disputes this however saying that the huge void is completely different from the other construction spaces previously identified in the pyramid hmm. basically as has been true about so much of the great pyramid this new finding effectively only further mystifies the grander story rather than resolving it
0: you mentioned the kind of ventilation shaft they call them that uh, right. over the king's chamber and there was another one of those TV specials I mentioned right that Hoas was on not too long ago where they sent a like rover robot up into one of the shafts to see where it goes because they were initially described as ventilation shafts and i remember even when i was a kid reading books showing diagrams cross section like of the pyramid showing them running all the way to the outside they don't go all the way to they the go outside f- far but not all the way yeah so if you go cuz he actually had like he and whoever was like um you know a, a reporter or someone who was on the show with him they went up onto the pyramid to look at here's where it should come out right as you can see it doesn't. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> and so it was, that was such a tantalizing thing. Like, going to go up sa- inside with a robot with a camera, see what's inside. And it's like a door with a small circular hole in the middle. Ooh! Like, oh damn! Did you watch this one? No, no. Oh, I'm, it's great. I'm
1: fascinated to hear.
0: So then they took it back down and they carefully like made this kind of thing that could put the camera through the hole in the door. This is like the whole lead up to it. I think it was a live thing on TV. Okay. They finally got up to the thing and stuck the camera through the hole all the way inside, and then like turned the lights on to see what was inside. And another small chamber and then another door. Oh, shit. So it's like, my God. So it's still a mystery after That's all that. That's so it's, cool. Yeah. Um, so exactly as you said, the more we learn, the more we don't understand.
1: And it's because of these features that we have the topic I'm talking of today. Mm-hmm. So you have a massive build of machine-like precision materials that are highly durable and took literal years, likely decades, for tens of thousands of healthy laborers, not slaves. That's been debunked thoroughly. Now we know it was a team, a humongous team, mm-hmm. or basically multiple teams of very skilled, or at least very strong and well-fed laborers who were building these pyramids.
0: And they were well taken care of too. There's signs that they're being like um, first aid kind of uh, things there, and people right. who had been responsible for helping build the pyramids having. Bro- Broken bones that were correctly set and correctly healed that died later in life of natural causes. I like right. the theory that people have said that a lot of them may have been off-season farmers. Oh, cool. Okay, I had read
1: that. I like that. Um, suffice it to say, this was like a very much team effort. Yes. All to establish a massive building with some very complex interior passageways and chambers. This incredible architecture and the persistent mystery of the Egyptians themselves has provided the ripe turf from which two camps of explanation have emerged to help us understand what the Great Pyramid actually was. On one side, historians, Egyptologists, and other academics maintain that, based on what we know of ancient Egypt, the pyramid is a massive, elaborate, and culturally charged tomb. Its size and structural complexities indicative of a masterwork effort to simultaneously celebrate religious and societal symbolism of the time, hmm. while also bandit-proofing the interred treasures of a very high-status figure in perpetuity. Yeah. On the other side, a more speculative proposition, often presented by conspiracy types, states that the architectural design, building materials, and location of the Great Pyramid collectively reveal it to be a kind of ancient power plant. Hmm. I'll lay out both cases in brief, focusing more on the kookier one, because it's more fun, <laughs> and we can take it from there.
0: Yes. I still, I like to imagine you, and you mentioned the idea, of the, the entire outside was all capped in limestone, and just how amazing the pyramids must have looked when they're brand new. They would have been... Totally smooth sides. Jaw-dropping. Just gleaming white. Exactly. Oh, well, have been probably pretty blinding in the desert oh, sun. yes.
1: That's why the Egyptians uh went away. They just... <laughs> they, all they all looked at, the at what they've done. Long. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, also a quick note: I'm not really going to get too much into how folks actually built the pyramid itself, the mm-hmm. methods used there. It's fascinating stuff if you're into that, and there are many well-founded theories. But the at the end of the day, we still do, just don't really know. Uh, there are various methods going, or you know, proposed methods going. Yeah, all of which sound pretty cool. I like the hydraulic suggestion very much.
0: Like mud kind of thing, or was it? Was uh, it- water actually. Water. Okay, we- I'll, I'm thinking of Stonehenge. I think oh yes I think you're right there's a lot of different instances of big rocks being moved by people long ago that were like wow how did they do it megalithic mega projects
1: Um, maybe in a mini so we can cover that stuff that'd be fun yeah so first off great pyramid as Khufu's tomb so this is the widely accepted and long held view all that building effort went into creating a grand tomb for an Egyptian king Khufu Acknowledgement of importance and respect for an entity who was seen as a literal mediator between the gods and the people, deserving of the finest eternal home for his ever-living soul, naturally. Other tombs excavated throughout Egypt from the most modest to the most opulent make it clear that ancient Egyptian belief in a life after death and the concern for the soul's welfare was very prominent. Mm -hmm. Grave goods were always placed in the tomb of the deceased, as well as in wealthier tombs, inscriptions and paintings on the walls. Uh, the Great Pyramid may be mysterious, but remains one of the grandest forms of this entombing practice in this view. Mm. Arguments against the Great Pyramid as a tomb cite the fact that no mummies or grave goods uh, have ever been found inside, but this argument willfully ignores the plentiful evidence of grave robbing from ancient times to the present.
0: Sure. It's thousands of years to get into the thing where you look at this gigantic structure and think, well, I know there's shit in there I could take. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I know exactly where to go.
1: There's just fucking rocks down here. <laughs> Egyptologists from the 19th century onwards have recognized that the Great Pyramid was looted in antiquity. In this view, the elaborate network of passageways present a means of deterring would-be grave robbers, and the various chambers served either ceremonial or structural roles. So basically, you can imagine if you're busting into this pyramid, you've got a ways to go, probably a lot of work to get in there. Mm. You go into one chamber, there's not really anything in here, fuck. I guess this is empty, but little did you know... It was the other passage going out to another nook, into another little corner.
0: That's where all the goods are. And if you're trying to break in, there's a likelihood of you know guards of some kind finding out and chasing after you, so you have a limited time while inside. Right. So you don't maybe necessarily have time to then try the other passages right away. Exactly. But over thousands of years, there's it, time for other people to people try. People could have gotten in, yes. yeah.
1: <laughs> These additional tiny passageways could have played some sort of cryptic role in helping prevent robberies that we just don't understand anymore. Or could have served some other f- ceremonial or symbolic function. I'm sure
0: the minotaur in there helped a lot.
1: Yes. The labyrinth, um, <laughs> I
0: believe, was first formed within the pyramid. And then moved to an island off the coast of Greece.
1: Exactly. That's what they stole first, was the labyrinth <laughs> itself. Yeah. They took it out <laughs> of the pyramid, but left the
0: pyramid behind. Um, what are we talking about? Go ahead.
1: So, there's abundant evidence to suggest the Great Pyramid was and remains a great architectural triumph by a culture in which death and the afterlife were equally or even more important than the brief window spent alive mm-hmm. but there remains the fact that we don't really know why uh, great the great pyramid features such an atypical tomb design its massive size and particular placement and the highly precise otherwise odd interior architecture combined with persistent unknowns about the true purpose of these features and I do believe an absence of many of the kind of wall inscriptions that one would normally see in these kind of tombs Mm -hmm. Um, overall leaves room for speculation. Even if there's no room for speculation, it still happens. (laughs) Oh yes. Enter the great pyramid as an early Tesla tower (laughs) as articulated with a good bit of edits by yours truly on medium by Chris Thompson, certifiable conspiracy theorist. All right. So the great pyramid of Giza was once covered in white polished limestone, as Jake mentioned, uh, referred to as casing stones. The stones fit together so perfectly, they would have uh, given the pyramid smooth, flawless sides. This would have made the giant structures uh, brightly reflect the sun like a mirror, but it would also have made the inside of the structure perfectly insulated. Mm. A large earthquake in 1303 shattered many casing stones, and the remainder were removed to use on other structures. Today, all that remains is the inner core of the pyramid. The material, dolomite, was used on the inner surfaces of the pyramid. Dolomite is known to increase electrical conductivity directly relative to the amount of pressure on it. High pressure creates more electrical current. Hmm. Lining the passageways and underground tunnels of the, uh, the pyramid is granite, which is slightly radioactive. Granite contains high amounts of quartz crystal with metal, and is uh, it's a well-known conductor of uh, piezo electricity. Am I pronouncing that correctly?
0: Piezo. I think it might be piezo. All right. I I looked it up way back when we first talked about that in episode yeah. twenty, I think, and I have fully forgotten. That's fine. I'll I say think piezo. I forgot. I looked it up before the episode and then forgot within the episode. So beautiful i will simply say piezo um
1: and it's a well-known conductor of piezo electricity occurs as a result of stress or pressure on quartz this can be seen in any quartz wristwatches, which can be charged simply through shaking granite line passages and we chambers not say
0: that you should shake your watch to recharge the battery it's just that it that's
1: what no it. you should thrash your watch about <laughs> um granite line passages and chambers could uh, actually ionize the air inside the pyramid further increasing the electrical conductivity A sufficient concentration of electrons, if given the chance to bypass sections of insulating rock via metal wire, would produce a very large current. In this theory, if granite was not chosen for its electrical conductivity, why else would the Egyptians use it? It has certainly stood the test of time, no matter which version of history you believe. Still, the amount of work involved in securing, manipulating, and establishing the granite elements would have easily been one of the more arduous challenges in an already titanic project. Granite is one of the hardest stones on Earth so working it would have taken much longer than the limestone out of which the pyramid and sphinx are constructed. Limestone was also abundant on the Giza Plateau. It is thought the granite used to make the pyramid, all 8,000 tons of it, was brought by boat from a quarry in Aswan, 500 miles away, 800 kilometers away. Hmm. Perhaps incorporating granite in some of the deepest sections was critical in order to properly honor Khufu as the god king he was. Hmm. So maybe his... Special chamber and a special sarcophagus was all... Special stone for special stuff. Exactly. Well, just northwest of the Great Pyramid is the uh, Serapium. Serapium? I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Here there are not one or two, but 20 huge granite boxes, Oh. each weighing 100 tons apiece. Jesus. Since these boxes are far too large for a human being, the accepted mainstream theory <laughs> is that they were coffins for the pharaoh's prize bulls again difficult to believe given what we what was clearly an incredible investment of time and effort each box is so huge and heavy it couldn't possibly fit through the existing tunnels and entrances to arrive at where it was found as such the supposed sarcophagi must have been built into the structure with such precision that they're within a ten thousandth of an inch of being perfectly flat hmm. A container serving as an energy capacitor or battery typically must be well insulated to maximize movement or storage of electrical charge. There's a centuries-old granite sarcophagus on display in an Egyptian museum that's thought to have been left unfinished. However, unlike those in the pyramid complex, this one's cracked, suggesting it wasn't unfinished, merely abandoned, since the crack would have been equivalent to a kind of physically broken giant AA battery.
0: And there was a lot of acid leaking out (laughs) of the sarcophagus, too.
1: (laughs) In 1993, a mysterious and inaccessible room was discovered after remaining hidden for thousands of years. Appearing to have been deliberately concealed by the structure's engineers, the room came to be called the Queen's Chamber.
0: The Room of Requirement. Hmm. hmm,
1: And was finally explored in 2011 with a small remote camera, which revealed carefully crafted copper wires embedded in a blocking stone within the narrow chamber. Hmm. Any battery, from those used in large power plants to the smallest pellet batteries and wristwatches, requires a metal such as copper to create the chemical reaction known as potential difference, he says. You can run an electric current through copper wire, and the coil will produce a short-range magnetic field. Add a second coil, and the power is transferred from one coil to the other. An insulated room with copper wirings could create a higher potential on one wall, which transfers energy to the lower potential on the other wall consequently releasing electromagnetic energy into the confined space of the so-called Queen's Chamber. It could still be argued that the electrical materials used to construct the Great Pyramid are purely coincidental because an energy generator still requires a catalyst from another source. This may explain why the pyramids are located over what, in their time, would have been a powerful natural generator underground rivers and aquifers. A natural charge could have been harnessed from the power of the current as the water of the Nile River flowed straight past the pyramids many thousands of years ago, which is true. Hmm. As a natural power source, water would have traveled up the limestone based on the principle of capillary action, which happens when a small area of a substance gets wet and absorbs into the entire area of that substance. Uh, The tunnel leading down from the bottom of the pyramid could have tapped into an aquifer, channeling the water up into the pyramid through a series of limestone tunnels. Through this process, the quartz and the tunnels of the pyramids would be subject to the stress or vibration of the absorption of the water, generating piezo-electromagnetic energy within the structure and conducting it upwards to the now-missing capstone. Hmm. We don't know for sure what capped the pyramid, but there's speculation that it may have been gold explaining why it would have been the first thing to go missing and remains missing to this day. Mm. If it was indeed gold, this could have created a conductive path for energy to be directed upwards, high into the ionosphere. In this way, the Great Pyramid may in fact have been a form of Tesla Tower designed to send millions of volts into the atmosphere, which could be received further away by grounded rods, reducing the voltage to a potential that could be used by consumers. (laughs) Because they (laughs) were just like fucking, you know, a power company. Um... But you get, his, you get what he's saying. Uh, yeah. This kind of wireless transmission of power has been shown to work over short distances. If the ancient Egyptians had electricity, it would explain why some of the ancient carvings appeared to depict glow-discharge light bulbs. It could also explain why there are no soot marks from flame torches inside the pyramids. They may have had electrical lighting. So this is one of the hieroglyphics he's talking about, the Dendera light, which you've maybe seen before.
0: Okay. <clears throat> Do you want to describe what you're looking at? It looks like uh, some someone holding up a giant, long, thin, round thing that you could argue has a filament inside. Their arms holding that up. I don't really buy that. That's what that's meant to be. But sure, I will show you a quick video of.
1: Okay, so a it's, replication
0: of that. All right. So the lift. thing inside isn't actually meant to be a filament. It's actually just arcing electricity squiggling around inside kind of like those things you get at spencer's gift the globe so you put, like, it's a the glow discharge inert gas discharge chamber kind of thing exactly uh and oh, they have of course a, a winged scarab at the end
1: they have a lot of goofy shit evoking the hieroglyph i guess yes. <laughs> and then in darkness
0: looks much cooler in the dark Hmm, no, I like it. <laughs> sorry the yawn don't let the yawn fool you it looks very cool in the dark thank you um, <laughs>
1: So, if the Great Pyramid was a power plant designed to generate and transmit wireless electricity, why don't we know about it? Mm. For the same reason, most people don't know about Tesla's wireless electricity because they haven't seen the Prestige yet. It would put the fossil fuel industry out of business. Yeah, oh, okay. if we haven't <laughs> seen the Prestige yet. Essentially, this is where he gets into his fringe the, the theory Conspiracy. Stuff. Stuff. Yes, so it's the all like, conspiracy. oh,
0: very, very, just like out there kind of theory for what it could be. But now, now the cover up part of it.
1: mm Hmm. That's sort of the end of his bit. Um, As far as fringe theories go, minus the conspiracy stuff, I have to admit I playfully love this one.
0: So many of them are usually like, you know, so many coincidences have to pile up and so many people keeping quiet, so many things like that. Yeah. This is a case where like, okay, there's actual legitimate science behind each little piece. Right. I still think it's too much. (laughs) I agree. I agree. it's all the stuff that is adding up to be too much is each individually fun little things. So they like, oh yeah, it's just neat properties of the stuff he's describing. It's a very
1: alluring kind of, yeah, fringe thing. Yeah. There are many little bits and because it is still such a big open-ended puzzle, it leaves all the room in the world for someone to uh, swing in. That said, I'm not terribly inclined to accept the words of a community that typically holds this theory on a level with ancient aliens, mm-hmm. technologically advanced ancient civilizations, <laughs> Um I mean they certainly had their own technological innovations and were in they their own the way pyramids. quite advanced yeah. yes <laughs> um but you know they weren't exactly I don't know
0: that they were using electricity <laughs> to no. and you'd think that would be something we would find el- evidence other of evidence in of terms of artifacts <laughs> anywhere else yeah like well, if that's so important to them why wouldn't there be light bulbs and stuff in you know, buried with pharaohs to so like oh you'll need this to light your way in the other there world like just some kind of something like that Right. I don't know. That's a very good point. I do like also the idea that, uh, you know, there, it's this is a, a conspiracy that gives more credit to the ancients than all the other conspiracies. Like, oh, people couldn't have done this, so must have been aliens. Instead, so it's like, oh, people could have done this, but the reason they did it was even more advanced than we gave them credit for. Yeah, like, oh, exactly.
1: Nice. It's like the inverse. Yeah. Um, it also doesn't help that most of the folks putting these ideas forward are decidedly outside of any field of professional academic study. mm often present that feature as a badge of sort of subversive legitimacy. <laughs> yep. Um, oh,
0: we're not part of mainstream science. Exactly.
1: They're the insurgent voice of truth. <laughs> because, of course, mainstream science just wants to uh, cover up the real
0: truth. That's you know, the reason we get into science and research is to find out what how the world really works and then hide that information as best we can. Oh, yeah. People can't know. They can't know.
1: <laughs> I've said too much already. <laughs> um, and further... It relies pretty heavily on cherry picking for support. Yes. So it's appealing at first blush, but proponents are basically pointing to apparent evidence while ignoring or willfully refuting strong evidence against. So, for example, they discuss the images captured in hieroglyphics, like I just showed you, the Nandera mm-hmm. light, which appear to depict elements of technological utility. While glossing over the more cultural and spiritual reads revealed through the careful and complete study of all the other hieroglyphics associated. So it's akin to seeing a more symbolic sentence like, this building will for many a generation maintain Khufu's soul and energy among the stars, where he will continue to ensure the health, productivity, and power of our people. And just reading the words, generation, energy, and power. (laughs) Oh, it's a power plant. Yep, there you go. So my take home for this segment is there may be a fun number of correlations between the structure of the Great Pyramid and the general design of an energy-generating and propagating device, but that does not oblige a causative link. Mm -hmm. Classic fallacy. Mm -hmm. If we are really trying to be scientific about all this, we should accept the most parsimonious explanation readily supported by the data at hand. That said... I think it would be very cool to see if folks could replicate the pyramid power plant concept at a smaller scale.
0: Yeah, see if it could actually work that way.
1: Yeah, exactly. Just model it, uh, explore the feasibility of the theory. But oh, wait, what do you know? How do you like that? I'll be damned. (laughs) A bit of recent science actually makes a very nice entree into this work, and I'm not even kidding. A study published in 2018 in the Journal of Applied Physics found, through careful modeling... That the Great Pyramid is likely quite effective at focusing electromagnetic energy in its internal chambers and under its base. (laughs) It's important to note that these are theoretical results, and thus make some assumptions about the structure of the pyramid itself, and further, that this modeling was done as a means of investigating the functionality of nanoparticles, not pyramid power. (laughs) But still... It is an interesting finding in that it suggests support for the Pyramid is Tesla Tower theory. Oh my God. Despite there still being quite a bit to go before that theory finds any legitimacy. Sure. <laughs> wow. So I thought that was kind of cool. That is pretty cool. I'll also link on the episode uh, page to a description of how the Tesla Tower was supposed to actually have worked. Mm. Um,
0: if only that guy had written off his shit down before he died. <laughs>
1: Um, yes, it's quite cool. By the Action Lab, the guy only says back and forth a thousand times. <laughs> when describing alternating current. Nice. <laughs> um, cool. Anyway, there you go.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you very much. You're quite welcome. In the spirit of ancient technology, this seems more advanced than we could possibly understand nowadays. I was thinking, <laughs> actually, I was very tempted to cover the uh, Antikythera mechanism. Yes, I was too, actually. Yeah, it was, it was we were both... Thinking about it, cause it seems very like, you know, it, it seems like the way you to know, yeah, but we both decided better because it's, it's pretty talked about. It's, it refers to this interesting looking machine found in a shipwreck. It was a Roman ship traveling in the, like a GNC uh, mm-hmm, off of the mm-hmm. coast of Greece. Yep. I think the island is near. it's near is called Antikythera. And it's this thing that clearly is a machine. It has like obvious gears, gears. like just cogs and stuff going on. And people were wondering, what the hell was this? Like, was it a primitive computer? And really, people have figured out that it uh, actually, like, after x-raying it and stuff, they can see all the layers, because it's, it's rusted all to hell from being out at the bottom of the ocean for thousands of years. But it was being transported to Rome, and I think they had found evidence of other stuff like it, maybe too, as far as to oh, compare against. Cool. But I it's, didn't know that. it's a clockwork machine for like, um, kind of determining star dates and stuff, I think. a like, yeah.
1: uh, major sort of like... Y- Yearly events. So yeah, astronomical phases sort of. So, of the moon, yeah. and then like, you know, oh, you know, the, the Olympics are coming up and all this kind of shit. So, as you would turn a single knob, it would rotate all the internal uh, machinery, all the cogs, and it would just basically, sort of like an analog Google calendar, essentially. <laughs> yeah, show you what's coming up. <laughs> It'll show you what's coming up. Pretty cool, and, it, and because it was analog, it could go forwards or backwards in time, and um, it was very useful. So there, we covered it for you. Now you're there good. There you go. Exactly.
0: It is not some fantastical, uh, you magical know, ancient artifact. Computer. Yeah, it's yeah. just it's just a cool thing that was built by the Greeks. Instead, I'll be reading from a 2007 article in New Scientist written by Noel Sharkey, who he is a a, a, um, a programmer, a computer scientist kind of guy. More like decade old scientists at this point. Yeah, really. Uh, I'll link to it, but it is unfortunately paywall protected by their site. Boo. Uh, but luckily for you, Wyatt, and for you, dear listeners. Uh the images I'll be referring to, which are from the article, do not appear to be paywall protected. Like if mm. I just have the URL of the images themselves. And if that does work out not to be the case, I tested it, it seems to be fine, but one way or another I will make sure that everyone can access the images so you can see the shit I am talking about without having to pay money. Noise. Also there'll be a video. Ooh. Uh the article begins with a quote. When Leonardo was at Milan, the king of France came there and desired him to do something curious. Accordingly, he made a lion whose chest opened after he had walked a few steps, discovering himself to be full of lilies. This quote is from Giorgio Vasari in The Lives of the Most Excellent Painters, Sculptors and Architects. Wow. From Florence in 1550s when he wrote that. Did the lion die? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think he was just surprised. <laughs> so here's from the article. Constructing a mechanical lion that could walk, let alone present flowers to the king, can't have been a simple task back in 1515, even for a genius like Leonardo da Vinci. How he managed this feat remained a mystery until 2000, when U.S. robotics expert Mark Rosheim came to a surprising conclusion. Pulling together fragments. He, didn't. <laughs> he just didn't do it. Like, oh, he didn't do it. Wow. So fr- I thought he must have. Uh, pulling together fragments of notes and drawings, Rosheim worked out that the line was almost certainly powered by a clockwork cart illustrated in da Vinci's Codex Atlanticus. Mm. Intriguingly, Rossheim suggested that the cart's steering mechanism was controlled by arms attached to rotating gears. Hmm. With this design, it could have been possible to control the automaton's movements simply by changing the position of these arms. In other words, Rossheim argues, Da Vinci's line was not only clockwork, it was also programmable. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. So basically what we're talking about is programmable robots hundreds of years ago. Damn. Um, I do have an image of that particular, uh, set of plans that he had found in da vinci's thing and that is this here and so here's some labeling so showing uh, huh. gear wheels driven by springs a steering mechanism kind of in there on the arms it's Co- colorized
1: in contemporary times I yes
0: mean. uh connection to a steering wheel underneath that wooden pedal cams knock against each uh, arm of the steering mechanism huh. It's kind of cool. It's um, Oh, I see. That is cool. It's very cool. It's a little unclear to totally figure out what's happening, but once uh, you, yeah. look, you start it for a while, it's like, all right, I could see how different stuff could do things. <laughs> things are like, yes. doing so, stuff. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's a bit like looking at a diagram in a how-does-it-work book. Without any labels, even exactly. though there are labels, there, there. are labels,
0: but it's still quite not quite enough. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a programmable robot, which yes, is that's very cool, very cool indeed, and that's what I'm talking about today. Oh, exciting! This astonishing idea raised some intriguing questions: Was Da Vinci influenced by an earlier design, and if so, how far back in history can we trace programmable robots? Uh, in search of answers, the author of this article, Sharkey. Followed the technology back through medieval Europe to the Islamic world where he found evidence of an even earlier programmable automaton made in Baghdad by the brilliant 13th century engineer Ibn Ismail Ibn al-Rasaz al-Jazari. He created a veritable fuckload of programmable... Okay, didn't say. <laughs> a veritable boatload is what he said. Uh, of programmable Language. robot... Language, <laughs> Programmable musicians. <laughs> Effectively a floating jukebox designed to entertain nobles as they drank and lounged at royal pool parties. That's cool. Yeah. That's the thing. A lot of this stuff is like it was all designed for the purpose of being cool, highly recreational. And you look at it now; it's like this shit's cool. <laughs> like, yeah, it really just it <laughs> definitely did what it's supposed <laughs> to. Um, Timeless cool. Yes. Uh, yet yeah, The trail doesn't stop there. It led Sharky even further back past Sharky. automata. Such a, name. It's a fun name. Yeah. It also makes me think of um, at the end of um, Lord of the Rings, uh, the Scouring of the Shire. Okay. When um, Saruman was talking about like how the orcs. Ed Isengard had given him a nickname of Sharky, which he thought was just kind of a just an endearing name, Sharky, whatever, which turned out apparently to be um, kind of derived from the Orcish word "sharku," which meant old man.
1: That's so funny! I forgot that they gave him that nickname. I'm sad that I remember. It's so to hear it now <laughs> it seems so
0: goofy. It does. They called me Sharky. <laughs> Imagine Christopher Lee's voice. Yes.
1: Oh, I can't do it. It was
0: a nickname they gave for me at Isengard. It's not a big there deal. it was a
1: nickname.
0: That's <laughs> a folksy, Saruman. Sharky. <laughs> anyway, it led the author of the article... It's short uh, for Shaku, <laughs> In that it's the exact same length. <laughs> it's shorter. <laughs> Even further back, past the automata of the Byzantine court in ancient Rome, to ancient Alexandria, is here that hero... One of the greatest Greek engineers constructed a programmable robot that predates da Vinci's by 1,500 years. Mm-hmm. Wow. Which is, I mean, 1,500 years before da Vinci, which is still centuries before anything we've built in the modern era. Uh, it's T- controls, time of the
1: dinosaurs right there. See, pretty much, yeah.
0: <laughs> Dinosaur robots. Oh, oh that's some, That's some timeless cool. If only there was a portmanteau there. <laughs> It's control system turns out to be unique, more like knitting than a computer circuit. What? Uh, but it can still be traced to programming stuff today, which is kind of wow, cool. that's cool. And it's the specific machine I read about and I think, a cracked article, which ended <laughs> up ed- leading me to this. Like, oh, that sounds cool. I want to look into that more. <laughs> that's cool. So, that's how I ended up here today. Um, so, what exactly does it mean to say something is programmable? A program is simply a set of instructions that tell a machine what to do. They don't have to be written out. They can be hardwired into a machine. The important point is that these instructions can be changed without having to dismantle or rebuild the entire mechanism. In other words, the program has to be separate from the machine and its workings in general, so you can just reset that one part of it and then the rest of the machine will work as opposed to doing a new thing. Mm-hmm. An old-fashioned music box is a programmable mach- machine, for example. Inside, there is a drum with cylindrical studs jutting out from its surface, and as the drum rotates, the studs strike the teeth of a metal comb to create a tune. Uh, the position and spacing of the studs provides a programmable code telling the machine which notes to play and what order and in what rhythm.
1: So, ostensibly, you could change the stud cylinder
0: to change a song, but you wouldn't have to change the machine itself. Exactly. You can just pull out the drum, put it in a different one, brand new song. Right. Um, da Vinci's robot used an even simpler mechanism to achieve the desired effect. So, the lion relied on two circular wheels with wooden arms or pedal cams. As the wheels rotated, the arms knocked against the steering mechanism, making the lion turn either left or right. Hmm. Uh, to make it follow a particular path, Da Vinci could have programmed the lion by altering the position of the wooden arms on the wheels. Mm. That's all he had to change, and it could do different stuff. That's cool. Uh, the article explains Da Vinci's lion and its steering mechanism in a fair amount of additional detail, but I can't be bothered to spell it all out here. That's fair. Uh, I'll maybe look into the possibility. That there's a free article that talks about that specific aspect of this. Then I'll link to it if anyone's interested, but I'm not going to talk about it right now because, oh, he did stuff. It made it different. Cool. Um <laughs> Many cultures have made use of cams since the earliest machines from ancient Greece and China. However, in nearly all examples we know about, the cams appear to have been an integral part of the design, and apart from Da Vinci's cart, there was no way to extract or alter them without a major rebuild. So mm. people would use that type of mechanism, but not in a way that was necessarily programmable. Mm-hmm. Eventually, however, Starkey stumbled on a stunning example. Starkey? Sharkey. I thought it was Sharky. Yeah, Sharkey. I accidentally said Starkey because that sounded like more of a name. Uh, Sharky. Sharky sounds
1: like a radio DJ. (laughs) It does. Sharky in the
0: morning. Yeah. Eventually, Sharky stumbled on a stunning example of a programmable robot that relied on a mechanism more like that of a music box. Hmm. Uh, This robot was Al Chazari's drinking boat, which he wrote about in 1206. What? In the Book of Knowledge of Ingenious Mechanical Devices. So this is just... Referring, again, back to the boat he talked about before with the musicians on it, it was apparently just called the drinking boat, I think, because everyone was drinking while they watched the boat. That's the only thing I could think Sounds of. Sounds about right. Otherwise, boats don't need to drink. It doesn't make any sense. It would be kind of funny if you just drink water until it sank. <laughs> yep. The, <laughs> it was it amazing? Just a hole in it. Yeah, exactly. I've
1: programmed it to go underwater.
0: <laughs> go on. Uh, on board the boat were four mechanical musicians, two drummers, a harpist, and a flautist. Al-Jazari described how they would burst into life every half hour and play music for a few minutes, continuing in this fashion for several hours without intervention. So it was the original tricky cheese <laughs> Basically, yeah. Uh, their motion appeared to depend on a primitive version of the studded cylinder in a music box. Running down the length of the boat beneath the musicians was a cylindrical beam with pegs protruding from it. As the beam rotated, the pegs would strike levers connected to the limbs of the musicians, creating lifelike motion. So, yeah, it just... Pegs that hit stuff, make things move. Cool. <laughs> uh, the beam was driven by a small water wheel turned by water from a tipping bucket, which was refilled automatically every 30 seconds from, drips from uh, by drips from a reservoir on board the boat. So there's a wow. big thing of water on the boat, dripping water into a bucket that would, once it filled up, dump out into this thing that would turn a water wheel, make everything work pretty neat. That's awesome. Yeah. This arrangement seemed to Sharky to be an ideal candidate for a programmable device. Drill holes all around the beam, and the musicians could be reprogrammed to create entirely different rhythmic patterns simply by rearranging the pegs. What Sharky fails to articulate here is how the musicians actually make music. I'm a little unclear on that. He specifically referred to it early in the article as a floating jukebox and said just a second ago that they played music, but, like, fucking how? Yeah, Uh,
1: just to imagine a peg basically hitting what I can only envision as a single flap.
0: Pretty much, make a musician move. Yeah,
1: I'm just imagining a robot. I'm gonna pantomime now by yes. basically standing there with a functional guitar, like
0: <laughs> just swaying. <laughs> just kind of yeah, jerking a little bit. Jerking a little bit. String. So it, if they just moved and that was the cool part, that that would be fine, and that would make more sense. And like, I guess for you know for the drummer, it could make sense. They could their movement could hit a thing and for the harpist too it could also be that there was only like one note on the harp and it would just kind of hit the strings and it would make that sound right as far as playing full songs I just don't buy that it's that complicated and for the flautist like how the hell does the flautist make sound yeah there's for no, real there's no mechanism for air to go through so something he just kind of glossed up like oh he did this stuff whatever we understand it's like well no there's a lot more <laughs> to understand about that that you just have not covered
1: peg hit flat make music there you go <laughs> <laughs>
0: Anyway, hunting further back than Al-Jazari proved much more of a challenge. Uh, Apart from some fragments of an 11th century treatise written in Andalusia by another engineer, Ibn Khalaf uh, al-Muradi, and the 9th century book of ingenious devices, every description of machines from the Islamic world, the Byzantine Empire, and from China and India lacked the mechanical details that would have shown whether or not they might have been programmable. Mm. It's like, okay, lots of cool machines that did cool stuff, but could the thing they did be changed to be something else without rebuilding was it actually truly programmable. Right. Uh, fortunately, the engineers of ancient Alexandria were more forthcoming about their designs. A considerable amount of their writing has been preserved, including works by the three great automata makers, Ktisibios, Philo, and Hero. Rather than programmable cams, most of their automata were driven by moving water, falling weights, or the displacement of air. Hmm. One description in particular stands out. A mobile theater invented by Hero in the first century. Hero was a prolific inventor, devising everything from a steam-powered spinning sphere called the illipoli or illipile, I'm not sure, hmm. to a vending machine that dispensed a shot of holy water straight to the dome in exchange for a coin. Really? <laughs> just extra- yeah, it, you put in a coin and like it would Squirt it some water, a your face. water come out, I guess. Huh. Uh, his mobile theater was more complex. Hmm. It was said to roll automatically across the floor on wheels to face an audience. Then it paused. At this point, the upper half of the machine, which depicted a shrine to Dionysus, the Greek god of wine, came to life. Mm. Featured, uh, this featured six aut- um, automata, automata, I guess, be how you say automaton and, and plural. This featured six automata, including Dionysus himself, along with female worshippers that performed a short show. The show had finished. The vehicle trundled off stage. I, I kind of shudder to imagine what the show necessarily actually <laughs> involved, especially if it was truly accurate with like satyrs and everything.
1: <laughs> yeah, it would be. A show. Not quite a show, indeed. (laughs) Um, (laughs) S-H-Triple-X-O-W.
0: So, Uh, this certainly seems like a candidate for a programmable machine, and translation of book one of Heroes... I just have
1: to say, too, it's just sort of a weirdly threatening vibe that it would roll partway across the stage and then stop, like some (laughs) kind of weird weapon, like, you know...
0: Blow up! <laughs> just kidding it's just Dionysus <laughs> there you go look at him doing what Do, they're doing doing what he does yeah oh and then, boy. then stops and drives away yeah well
1: thank you probably said that too <laughs> anyway go
0: on <laughs> <laughs> that boy. well thank oh, you thank you <laughs> so in a translation of book one of heroes peri Antamato uh peri-automatopoietekes I'm gonna try one more time mm-hmm Hero's peri automata poietekis, which it translates to on-automata-making, supplied the answer. This theater was indeed a programmable machine, and in kind of a surprising way. There were hmm. no cams involved at all. Instead, Hero used a much more explicit programming strategy than either Da Vinci or Al-Jazari. His method of programming is unique in the history of robots. It relied on string. Ooh. So that's what he meant earlier by saying it was more like knitting than it was like I normal robots. Yeah, stuff. that was a bit of a weird pull. Yeah, and it does not involve... Pulling. (laughs) Get the fuck out. (laughs) Jump out the window here.
1: (laughs) Just kidding. Jump out the window here. Good night. Good afternoon.
0: The base for his mobile theater was a simple automaton, much like Leonardo's cart, with two wheels at the front and a single wheel centered on the back. Hmm. Uh, The power source was a falling weight, which was attached by twine via a pulley to the front axle. Winding the twine around the axle raised the weight up the inside of the hollow cylinder. When the weight was released, it pulled the twine and the wheels turned. Notice mm-hmm. the weight coming down would cause the wheels to turn. the regiment would move them on the top very quickly forward for a short distance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the problems inherent in this design is that to keep the machine moving for any length of time, you must either raise the weight to a considerable height or somehow regulate its descent. So I have just a really tall thing Way way up just, it just comes plummeting Yeah down. exactly A cart that's like four feet high And then a pole that goes up to like <laughs> 70 feet up yeah. And it just falls down so I just keep going and going And it has like a huge huge Spool of <laughs> flying around the axle <laughs> uh, The cart's like up off the ground and shit <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> So, it's here that Hero's genius shines through. Mm -hmm. He opted to rest the weight on a cylinder full of wheat grains and made a small hole in the bottom so that they could trickle out. What? So, it wouldn't fall just under the weight of gravity suspended in air. It would be resting on wheat grains and it would fall at the rate that those Uh, emptied out of of the cylinder. So, now the weight descended more slowly, releasing its energy over a relatively long period. It would move same distance, but it would do it at a more reasonable rate. and Rather than just sort of zooming across around. The state. Yeah. <laughs> 70 foot tall thing just speeding across the stage as fast as it can. While some
1: weirdly pornographic <laughs> yeah.
0: shit is like going on. Yeah. Well, no, it zooms across as fast as it can <laughs> and then pauses. And then falls out of the so audience much and then fucking
1: yeah. What is
0: happening? <laughs> Why did you do this? <laughs> I'm so scared. Let's write about it. Forever. (laughs) Uh, Each loop of twine wrapped around the axle would propel the machine forward by one wheel revolution, but Hiro had also found a way to make his robot move backwards. He stuck a peg into the center of the axle at right angles so he could wind the string in one direction and then wrap it around the peg and continue to wind around the axle in the opposite direction. So he could go forward and then when it got to that part, the string direction would reverse and then it would be going backwards so it could just instantly change direction. That's cool. Here's idea was so elegant that even as Starkey read it, he says, the hairs in the back of my neck Sharky? stood on end. Sharky. Yeah. Damn it. it again. I worked with someone whose last name was Starkey. I think that's what happened here. Uh, it made his hair stand on end anyway. It also struck Sharky that this mechanism provided the basis of a simple programming language. For example, winding the string around the axle 10 times in one direction, then passing it around the peg and winding it five times in the other can be represented as forward 10, backward 5. So any, that one out. into computer language shit now. Um. It also turned out that Hero had devised a pause command for his robot. It is a function of time. Hmm. He simply pulled lengths of string off the axle and stuck them either to the axle or to the side of the robot using wax. What? When the weight So when the weight pulled on the wax, it would release the extra string, so the robot uh, would pause while the extra slack was being pulled in. So it would be pulling up the slack that was stuck t- to the wax, as opposed to pulling string off of the axle. And- so at this part of the rope is basically attached to it's loosely attached that so it'll come off and so it's stuck but on only, only so the it point won't,
1: that yeah yeah so it's stuck uh, okay. on just
0: so it won't fall off but um it will then be pulling on string and not it turning weird sounds like the a wheel. tricky thing to set up but i can yeah I can it's see like it. so much involved very yeah, fucking cool that is cool um timelessly cool i got to say if there was a way i could describe this <laughs> um clever the mechanism was the robot could only move in straight lines The control unit in most modern robots uses individual commands for each wheel or motor individually. So, forward underscore left wheel four and backward underscore right wheel two, for example. This is what gives these machines great freedom of movement. Just proving that he knows what he's talking about, I guess. I guess so. Um, Uh, Allow me to uh,
1: flex my
0: (laughs) coding here. yeah. Yeah. Hero's book reveals that he was ahead of the game with yet another elegant solution. He just split the front axle in two and attached one end of the string to each piece so that they could move independently. Mm. So it would be basically one continuous axle across the front, but the middle part would be separate so that the left and right wheels could spin in opposite directions at the same time if they wanted to. Do and a little rotation or
1: something. Yeah, yeah,
0: you just turn around. They only had one wheel in the back, so then they could just Swivel. steer from that. Yeah, Everything that could be done with the one axle could now be done with each half of the split axle. Here it even explained how this could be um, used to drive the robot in circles or in snake-like patterns. The programming possibilities appear endless. So here's an image of just what the f- fuck I'm talking about. Yeah, what the hell are you talking it's, about? Uh, I mean, it's easy enough to just say it in words, Twine? but <laughs> here is a diagram of what that <laughs> would look like. So you have a cylinder in the back of it with full of grain, has a weight on it that pulls strings on mm. either pulley. They have different pegs at different times to reverse the direction and stuff, so the wheel will go one way or the other at different times. Is even showing a basic programming for what it could do. It's like, oh, it'll go forward and then backwards while the other one pauses and do all these, things so it can do different stuff. Wow, um, pretty cool. That is really cool. Yeah, and god, uh, it would have taken forever to set this up. Oh my god, it'd be yeah, a huge pain in the ass. Here's also a cute little video from New Scientist of a simplified version of this thing built by Ben Crystal. <laughs> it's a pretty robot. The music. power of the robot yeah. comes from a weight which is falling down a tube and the uh, the weight is attached to a string. The string is then wound around two axles and as the string pulls, the axles turn. Uh, the the, <laughs> the the pole of the post in the center is, yeah, describe what is happened like.
1: <laughs> Um, As he's describing these things, we see footage what you heard as the clattering was his own home build of just the basic cart design where we have a weight attached to twine which then feeds down into the machine to steer the two front driving wheels with the single pivoting wheel on the back and we see this thing kind of I can use the word again skitter <laughs> yeah. into the room and do kind of like a power slide <laughs> it does. and then it sort of hobbles a little bit away off screen it's, it's still very cool it's just yeah. uh,
0: and he He's using, just, it's just free hanging. It's not in a thing yeah, of grain. Yeah, so it's, it's rushing. So it's going as fast as it's, it's zooming <laughs> it's across zooming. the room. Yeah. Yeah. I also very want to play cool. a little bit of, yeah, uh, please. I'd like to see. he says, um, describes more. how he made it.
1: How was the robot made?
0: I took my son's scooter and I cut the wheels off. Huh. And I took a couple of broomsticks and cut those up as well <laughs> to make so the axles. He just, just destroyed his son's scooter to make. So he couldn't just have bought some <laughs> wheels <Dead>. from somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get it. You. As his son was using it, he just like came out with an axe and yeah. just cut the wheels off and just came out flying. I need it for my string machine. <laughs> so back to the article. But can we be sure that any of the, these machines were really intended to be programmable? There's little doubt that the machines of Da Vinci and Al Jazeera could have been programmed. And it seemed likely that, that both engineers had a good idea of how they wanted their automata to perform. They would also have been able to fine-tune the behavior of the mechanisms in their machines by reshaping cams, removing pegs, if they had a set movement or rhythm pattern in mind. However, this is not quite the same as programming. Unfortunately, there's no evidence in their writings or elsewhere that they actually programmed the robots to perform specific movements. So what? it was possible, but we don't know that they did. But on the other hand, after reading Perry Automata, oh man, why'd I put it in here again? I mean, it was in the article, I guess that's a problem. Um, after reading Perry well, Automata, was translation? Po- uh, just on Automata, I just think say it's something that. to that. But it's fun to say if you say Automata oh, keys. Okay. Perry automata <laughs> Um, after reading that carefully Hero's intention seems very clear his writing makes it obvious that he designed his robot to be cr- programmable to suit different theatrical purposes hmm. one point, even describes how to program complex behavior by moving the robot backward from the end point through each required movement of the performance at the start letting the twine wind itself appropriately around the axles so you can just like, oh you know you, what you want it to do so you can just move it backward through be exactly the movements the yeah and yeah. then it'll just do what you want Um, modern programmers apparently use a similar method to teach robots to paint vehicles on factory assembly lines. Wow. They actually start from the end and work their way I don't know why it's necessary but they remove the paint. (laughs) Yep. Uh, (laughs) uh, There's also the vexatious question of whether Hero's machine was the first. Vexatious. What a word. It's hard to believe that there were no earlier designs. In his book Hero hinted that he was giving us something new in an already established theatrical tradition. But he complained that earlier writers were not clear enough to enable others to copy their robots. So basically, your hero is just saying, you guys know about this stuff. Yeah. It's, 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 it's old or, news. It's, it's something, it's, here's something even cooler, and I'm actually going to explain to you how to do it, unlike those other jerks. But just the idea that... <laughs> what I don't know. a hero. <laughs> yes. So he made explicit references to Philo of Byzantium's lost book on automatic theaters from 200 BC, for example. Hmm. Elsewhere, there are references to even earlier automata, for example... In the fourth century BC, Aristotle wrote about automatic puppets and a child's wagon that could move in a circle, describing them as if they were commonplace. They hmm. so got these fucking robots, man. They're I'm so everywhere. Over it. So boring. Uh, the programmable self-propelled machine might even go back as far as the eighth century BC. Wow. According to Homer's Iliad, it's a quote from the Iliad. Hmm. Hephaestus was making twenty tripods that were to stand by the um, the wall of his house. And he set wheels of gold under them, all that might go of their own selves to the assemblies of the gods and come back again. Marvels indeed to see. It looks like the search of the earliest programmable robot is far from over. Mm -hmm. That's how the article ends. Uh, I chose a topic today to point out what I think we both feel pretty strongly about, which is just that people could still be smart even in the past. Yes, indeed. Indeed. And it's not necessarily just aliens.
1: Right, exactly. And... Things can be extremely innovative and technologically astounding without necessarily being the ancient versions <laughs> of things that we think we understand from today. Yes, Repower plants, etc. Yes. Um, yes, ancient tech is cool. It's a it's a topic we could cover it again in a there's future episode. There's plenty of
0: it, and we may all, it's also it doesn't have to be just from ancient times. too. there's plenty of right. tech even today that absolutely seems like it's science fiction, but is totally
1: real. They just That's very cool. I think i just saw something about a new kind of ice that is extremely hot oh um i forget the name is of it, it ice four or five ice ice eight they called it <laughs> oh, actually i'm oh not boy. even kidding oh no a- in reference yes yeah. um we're so close now
0: <laughs> I, yeah
1: <laughs> that will stop climate
0: change <laughs> it'll make it happen really hard all of a sudden and yeah. then it'll
1: stop forever
0: <laughs> snowball um but yes there you have it so that's that's our episode for this week. Next week, join us, and we're going to talk about scientific endeavors gone wrong. Ooh.
1: Which can include experiment go boom it face,
0: mm. adventure go wrong freeze people. All kinds of different ways things can go awry while sciencing. Indeed. There are more. More than two. I would say. But we'll talk about two.
1: Science is mostly preventing things not going this way. <laughs> 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 uh, but yeah, we'll talk about two and um, look forward to joining you
0: then. Bye, bye.